This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. Usually, when I do a book appreciation show, I'm focusing on a few specific books that my guest wants to talk about. But when I invited Anna Clutterbuck Cook onto the show, it was in the middle of a Twitter conversation about FF historicals in general, touching on both loves and frustrations about the field. So expect this to be a fairly wide-ranging conversation. Anna is a reader, writer, historian, and reference librarian. She explains that in the past five years, she has rediscovered the romance genre after spending years reading and writing romance in fan fiction form. She reads and writes FF, MM, FM, and poly relationships, and reads primarily historicals, paranormals, and historical paranormals when she can find them, with a dash of contemporaries when the right one comes along. She grew up in West Michigan and currently lives in Roslindale, Massachusetts with her wife and two cats. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. It's great to be on. So when I first proposed having you come onto the show, you suggested a few topics for discussion. And I think this is going to be more of a discussion than an interview because we both have passionate opinions about them, sometimes in agreement and sometimes with different points of view. Um, The first topic is, I think, the one I first noticed you posting about on Twitter, which is the structural barriers in the publishing world for readers looking for FF romance. And I think it may help if we settle on using FF to talk about, in general, about books featuring relationships between women and use lesbian romance or lesfic to talk about the self-identified community of readers, writers, and publishers who use those terms because that comes into some of the dynamics we'll be talking about. So let's start talking about price. Yeah, so to elaborate a little bit sort of about how I came back into published romance um, in the context where I was actually purchasing books, because when you are reading and writing fan fiction, uh, the majority of those materials are going to be free. Um, the people who write them are not writing them for as part of their professional writing, although sometimes they are professional writers, the fan fiction is usually available without having to pay anything for them. And so when I came from um, a context where I was reading romance um, stories that I didn't have to pay for at all um, (laughs) into a space where I'm purchasing material that is sold by writers who are making that part of their living, um, which is something I, I support I believe people should get paid for their work if it's work they are choosing to do um, in that context. But I was buying ebooks primarily because even though I belong to a number of um, really strong uh, public library systems, a lot of the queer romance that I was looking for, the authors were either writing fan fiction and then publishing different original stories on the side or were people who were recommended by other fan fiction readers. Most of those were independently published, um, not conventional romance publishing houses, um, and often online only. So I wasn't able to find um, print versions of most of these stories. And so I was buying largely through Kindle, the Kindle platform on Amazon. And a lot of times the way that those books are structured, you get a series of novels or novellas. The first couple are going to be 99 cents a piece, $1.99. So in that way, you can try out a new author for much less than the price of a latte these days. (laughs) Um, So so as I started paying for romance novels, um, that's the those are the price points that I became familiar with in the context I was purchasing romance. And then um, as I was searching for most of the authors I was reading in that context were either MM or MF and sometimes more complex relationships. So as I was starting to look for romance that was FF-focused, people would recommend things to me on Twitter, their favorite authors, things like that. But as I was going to look up those titles, um, I was finding them to be much higher in price. Um, So like $9.99, $12.99, those kind of prices, which 
I, I don't have a whole lot of um, discretionary money. <laughs> so there is a big difference in you know, how many titles I can buy at those higher price points and wading into what felt like a field where I was really unfamiliar with the authors. So there weren't authors I was already familiar with from these MM and F, MF contexts who were also writing FF. So I'm, you know, listening to people who have made good, you know, tr- trustworthy recommendations, but I'm buying an author that I'm completely, just completely new to me. So it can be really frustrating when you're trying to figure out what authors you like and what kind of keywords to look for in your <laughs> novel descriptions. Um, whenever you're starting out with a new genre, you end up inevitably reading stuff that doesn't quite do it for you because you're sort of flailing around trying to figure out. Yeah, I think sometimes, especially when you're moving into a new, I guess, publishing community, you don't know right. what the keywords are. You don't know what the, the code is to, to, that will tell you this is a book that, that's going to hit my sweet spot because every, exactly. every, every subfield has its own code. Yep, I agree. And like even coming from, you know, fan fiction has a very elaborate code. Um, <laughs> yes. With and very, with very forthright one. Exactly. And I really appreciate that, you know, everything. I mean, it, if people don't tag their work accurately in the fan fiction community, people get very upset because that's how they sort and filter and find things and also avoid the things that they don't want to read. So, you know, if you get a story that has one of the major characters dying at the end and the title, the, the data around the story hasn't cued that for you, fan fiction readers are going to get very upset. And so um, I came out of that context where I really knew how to sort through things. And then the published romance world has another whole set again. And I do, I do think that the lesbic publishing community seems to have yet again a, a related but um, also distinct vocabulary for what people are looking for. Yeah. Um, so cross-walking the knowledge that I brought from the previous two communities of you know romance story writers and readers um, into lesbic, lesbic spaces was not as helpful <laughs> yeah. as uh, you know might be ideal. I confess the the price aspect never has never been a barrier for me, and that's coming from a couple of different directions. One is that yep. that my my reading background is primarily mainstream fantasy and science fiction, so I come into it with the default expectation of you know mainstream right. mass market prices. So it you know part of that is just you know, what, what, what is normal for you? The other aspect yeah. being that, you know, I am in the privileged position of being able to shell out lots of money for books. When I buy my nonfiction <laughs> books, I think nothing at all. Well, okay, I do think a little bit about paying more than 100 bucks for a single book, but, but I do right. it on a regular basis. So, so that's something where I can, I can sympathize, but it doesn't hit me in, in, the, in the gut the same way it does for for people who read a lot more fiction than I do, and for people right. who don't have that same budget for it. But yeah. it, it, I, I, th- I think part of what you noticed when you started looking at, um, especially the lesbic side of publishing, is the history of the field. Because the pricing on, and I'm thinking of publishers like my own publisher, Bella, or Bold Strokes, yeah. or publishers like that who are, Giving books the nine ninety nine ebook prices, and the you know fifteen to twenty dollar hard uh, paperback prices. Yeah, a lot of them are coming out of the early feminist publishing. I mean, Bella yeah. is in some ways the spiritual successor of Nyad. Back yeah. when ebooks were not a thing, so the business right. model got established when it was hard copies and book bookstore distribution and yep. having to model yourself that way. And you know, I, I'm very much ignorant of the development of say the MM fiction world. I, I remember seeing what I think must have been self-published hardcovers, not, not, not hardcovers, but paperbacks um, at science fiction conventions, um, right at the beginning of sort of the self-publishing movement. 
yep. back when I don't think ebooks were really a thing yet, although my memory is fuzzy. But I don't know if there was this same um, the same industry of gay male f- publishing that was entrenched in uh, you know physical books for the for the current MM romance um, ebook market to evolve out of, or whether it really developed and bloomed within the ebook context. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question, and I like you. I am more familiar with the you know women's bookstores, uh, women's publishing houses of the seventies and eighties that I know were a, you know are a very distinct and very clear predecessor to today's lesbian publishing houses. And I I know that back in the sixties and seventies, um, and probably into the eighties, there were you know, gay bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in Boston. We're, we're gearing up for the 50th anniversary of, of Stonewall um, celebrations where we have a whole list of, you know, sites of former gay bookstores. That were yeah, isn't that a sad from. thought? Sites of former gay bookstores. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I could, you know, mark on a map all of my old favorite feminist bookstores that none of which still exist. Yeah. Yeah, and so I know at some, at, certainly at some point in the mid 20th century, there were, in part because mainstream booksellers weren't selling them, you know, gay publishing houses or gay friendly publishing houses. My sense is that MM as it exists today is somewhat distinct from gay fiction as well. Yes, um, yes, and that's that's and, another topic we should probably at least touch on. <laughs> So, so there is, yeah, that's, I think, a, a topic that would be really interesting. I don't sort of have enough background in the publishing aspect of it. And it's kind um, of tangential to the topic of my podcast. But, right. I mean, for the listeners, but, even the use of terms like MM and FF is coming largely out of the fan fiction movement. Right. And I think that there is also, I don't know how much truth there is to this, but the cultural sense from people who aren't necessarily in um, sort of the, the queer romance reading and writing world that that MM is a genre developed by straight women for straight women. Which um, of course is a misnomer a, because I think a lot of them are by women and I even know lesbians who preferentially write MM. But but yes, by, by non-gay men for non-gay men. <laughs> Right, exactly. And in fact, some of the conversations that I have had with women who are, are coming up through the lesbian fiction community and are not reading MF or MM, um, their perception is definitely still that MM is a space that's not really queer and is appropriative of gay male identity, which I think is an aspect of the conversation that shouldn't be ignored or you know brushed off i always think conversations about appropriation are important to have but given that the majority of the authors i know who are writing mm are themselves queer um complicates the appropriation aspect of things because it's not straight women writing about gay men for their own you know sort of community it's queer women writing queer stories i read MM by trans authors and non-binary authors Um, and so it's a space that is much more complicatedly queer than people who are looking in from the outside and saying you know oh this is just a bunch of you know women writing gay porn for each other which Which of course has has the whole dismissing romance aspect to it which brings in misogyny and and yada 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 So, so I think that it, it brings up a lot of, <laughs> like, there's also, I don't think that there's any problem with, you know, women engaging with, with gay porn either, but there but are, there are problems embedded in it. <laughs> right, exactly. And, um, and I think that getting back to the price point, of course, one of yeah. the dynamics that's going on is however you measure it, the market for MM fiction is substantially larger than the market for FF fiction, and especially than the market for what is identified as lesfic. 
Lesvik yeah. tends to identify itself as, you know, the, the core, the, the prototype model of Lesvik, which isn't to say that this covers all cases. I, I get prototype theory into everything because that's my, my academic background. But um, is that it's being written by lesbians for lesbians about lesbians. The idea yeah. being that it's an own voices movement, that the target audience is assumed to be women who love women, and that the content of the books will guarantee the reader that, uh, you know, to, to, to talk about it crudely, you're not going to have any penises wandering, wandering around through your book. And that those, those factors narrow it down even further than just a question of who might enjoy reading FF romance. And as we know, anytime economics comes into a field, the smaller your market, um, the, the worse your price point is. So especially the people who are publishing physical books where you've got the overhead and you've got the distribution and everything, that the smaller the market, the higher the price you have to set in order to make ends meet. So if you're trying to do it professionally, especially if you're a publisher where you've got, you know, a physical space, you've got staff, it, it's, it's simply an economic reality. However, that then creates a, a vicious spiral in the marketplace. So yeah, and I think in terms of the economics of published romance um, and less fiction, like we, sexism is undeniably a part of that. Even in a genre romance that's dominated by women, there is still like I, I think that economically, there's a reason why MM has been more quickly integrated into published romance genres, I'm seeing more series with MF and MM characters. So you have multiple works where you're getting both um, types of relationships in the same stories. And even those are much less likely to have FF. Um, and if they do have FF relationships in them, they're either in novellas, which means that the author has been given permission to include this, but probably hasn't been supported by the publisher to mm -hmm. write a full-length FF. Yeah, we've been so seeing a couple of those coming out. A, an extra. Yeah, I've seen a couple of those um, coming out from, like, name authors. I mean, like like Alyssa Cole's um, FF novella, where, exactly. you know, it's like, it would be lovely if she'd write more, but one suspects that the money isn't there. <laughs> exactly, and I so I think that this also, my suspicion is that part of the reason you have so many queer women writing MM in the romance market is that they can successfully pitch those stories and they're not getting picked up for FF. So if you're wanting to write queer romance and also work with publishing houses um, in the sort of mainstream of romance, those pitches are going to be much more like lucrative and just a strictly economic, I need to pay rent this month way. <laughs> yeah. And so they, you start out writing those and then I have, you know, half a dozen, you, you mentioned Alyssa Cole, we've got KJ Charles, we have Jordan Hawk, a number of others who have been, who have now established themselves as MM authors who are playing around with, are people going to read my FF if I if I put out a short story, if I write them as background characters in, you know, a, a novel that centers an MM or MF relationship. And I'm hopefully, <laughs> hopefully those experiments will prove both to the authors and the publishers that the readership is there. Although it it's, I, I have had some interesting speculations in my own head where I don't know that even the success of those branching out from the from the authors who are primarily MF and MM or a combination of the two, I don't know that that will necessarily open up the field to authors who are primarily writing FF, as opposed to you know, proving to publishers that, yes, if you've got an established readership, you can do this occasionally and it won't hurt your brand. Yeah, I agree that that's a... a danger <laughs> and much like the conversation around you know white authors writing 
more racially diverse characters versus actually hiring writers of color to write their stories, that's a dynamic that I think is important not to discount um, Mm -hmm. and and has real structural ramifications for who 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 is writing and getting remunerated fairly for what they're doing. And it gets into you know, one of your other topics, which is cross promotion and how people find new authors that, you know, when, when, um, Alyssa Cole or KJ Charles writes an FF book, that doesn't necessarily lead their readers to other FF authors that, that may lead their readers to say, Hey, you know, I wish I could get more of this, but if there isn't a mechanism for then, crossing over and saying, hey, you know, there are these authors who write this all the time and you might like them too. Now, I have to say, um, my experience with with KJ Charles is that she is wonderful about cross-promoting people outside of the MM and MF uh, markets when when they come to her her attention for for books that she thinks that her readers would also enjoy. Uh, and I had Alyssa Cole on my show, and, and it was lovely, and I'm doing my best to, to cross-promote in that direction, to take people from mainstream, as it were, and tell lesbic readers, hey, you know, there are people outside our own community who are writing books that I think you would really enjoy, and, and here's my, my deep, dark, secret, ulterior motive, to tell people in the lesbic community, you know, there are people writing really, really good FF romance that you might want to think about using as a model for your own writing. Uh, because that gets back to one of the other things you were talking about, which is you look in the, in the lesbic uh, publishing community, you find a new author, and you don't know, you don't know what flavor you're getting. Right. And there is very definitely a strong flavor within or a group of flavors within the lesbic publishing community and there's also and i'm going to say something really controversial here for my primary audience there is a strong acceptance of a lower level of writing quality in lesbic because that's what people are used to and i know it's kind of you know hazardous for me to say things like that not only because that is my publishing context but because there's this very strong tradition of, you know, you do not diss your fellow lesbic people. Um, and to, to suggest that there are systemic quality issues in lesbic is really taboo. And yet, I think, as, as I think you have mentioned on occasion, you know, it's very hit and miss. You, you, you take a random lesbic romance and the chances are, if you are used to mainstream publishing writing quality, it is not going to meet your standards. Yeah, and I think that that's definitely part of the, the sort of vicious cycle that I think you and I have talked about in the past, that if you're someone who's coming to lesbic looking for FF relationships and saying, oh gosh, here's a whole community of people who write this, um, where do I start? When you start with a, you know, a few sort of hand, things that have been hand-sold to you on recommendation from friends as decent examples of the genre, and you get in and it's basic sort of craft issues around point of view shifting. <laughs> you know, I... I this book I, is all dialogue. Right, and, and you can do some of those things effectively, but if it's stuff, uh-huh. if, it's, if it's problems that I actually... If it's I would, craft I would be problems. frustrated with in a piece of fan fiction that someone has written and, and probably had, you know, a beta reader or two help them to refine and post. If I'm seeing problems that wouldn't get past a beta reader in fan fiction in a published romance that I've paid for, you know, it, it is, it becomes that much harder to sell me on the next one, right? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like, well, maybe the story is great, but the quality of writing is really, really thin, or they're just basic structural issues, and I don't know enough about the editorial processes that go into... I, I know that there are some people who are self-published in all of these categories, but if someone's working with a publishing house... You know, some of my favorite MM authors I know have developmental editors and have 
you know, several layers of working through stories um, to, to hammer out, flesh out the characters and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're getting a lot of editorial support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if in the lesbian community there's just less of that to go around so people aren't don't have the opportunity to strengthen their writing through that editorial process or if something else is going on. <laughs> yeah, and certainly for, I would say, the vast majority of self-published lesbic authors that the the editorial support is pretty catch-as-catch-can. But it varies enormously. It varies yeah. enormously. So how do you typically find new FF authors that you have then enjoyed? What are the methods that have worked for you? I don't know if I have found... I think I'm still in the process of struggling to find like a big, big pool of, of lesbic authors or FF authors. What I would say is that the majority of my finding romance stories, whatever the relationship at the center of them that I enjoy has been largely through one-to-one contact and recommendations. So either through friends whose taste I know is similar to my own who say, hey, I found this author, it's great, you know, check it out. Or authors who I really enjoy recommending fellow authors. So you had talked about KJ Charles right, reading stuff and, and saying, hey, if you like my work, you'll also like this. That sort of snowball sampling is how I find most of my new content. So whether it's fan fiction, whether it's published romance, occasionally I do, I will follow an author that I know into an anthology, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a really useful way of finding new authors. So if an author I know has a short story in a book with you know five to 10 other authors who are all writing paranormal shorts or something like that, I'll check that book out, and then usually I'll find an author or two whose work, whose contribution to that anthology I really liked, who I will then go and see what else they have. So that's another example, I think, of, of cross-promotion that can be really effective. And for established authors, it's a great way to support voices that they feel are underrepresented in the genre. Mm-hmm. Because you can say, okay, if you've got a KJ Charles or a Jordan Hawk or something <laughs> like that, whose name is on this anthology, then we can bring in some other people who don't have that same draw, but who are writing in a very similar vein. Yeah, um, it, it's very much similar to, you know, who, who are your favorite authors uh, reading and enjoying? And right. that's, that's actually one of the reasons I started doing the, the book appreciation add-ons to my interviews And it goes two ways, and I've heard people talk about this, where part of it is if you're already a fan of the author who's making the recommendations, then it's, you know, a shortcut to maybe I will like the books they like. But the other side of it is if you've never heard of this author before, but they're saying, I like this book and this book and this book, and you have also liked a couple of them, you're more likely to try that author, because at the very least, they've got good taste, you know? So I always view it as a win-win for authors to talk about the books that they like because it forms this, you know, this, this overlay network of, of similarities that people can follow. Yeah, I will absolutely. I follow a lot of romance authors on Twitter. And if they are talking about a book or, you know, they see and they recommend a new author, um, you know, I, I am much more likely if it's someone whose work I like um, to even go and give something a try at a higher price point uh-huh. um, because they say, you know, this is really awesome. You should watch this person's work. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I think that that hand selling, I, I come from the book, from the bookseller world before uh-huh. I became a librarian and that sort of, you know, this is a new book. This is a new author that if you like this person, you should give a try really, really does work. I still remember I think- the day I, I walked into my local science fiction fantasy bookshop and I, I said to the, to the, bookstore, the, the owner, bookstore owner, so there's this new author that friends of mine have thought I might like and I'm trying to remember. And he came out with the author and book off the top of his head just from that introduction. I mean, what we have lost in the loss of small genre specific bookstores is incalculable 
and Twitter can only make up for it a little bit. Yeah, I agree. And I do listen to another way that I find new authors. I don't have a whole lot of time to listen to podcasts right now, but um, the Ripped Bodice bookstore in LA. Oh, do they have a um, podcast? They are very active on Twitter. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I was going to say, do they have a podcast? <laughs> no, you. No, they you were saying you podcast, saying they don't. But I I found them through the Smart Bitches Trashy uh-huh, Books podcast, yes. and so. <laughs> those networks not only of authors but also really strong review publications uh-huh. romance bookstore <laughs> the, the one the one the romance bookstore. <laughs> yeah um, i need to get but, down there someday yeah i haven't i'm i'm too far away at the moment but um to get down there but you know people are making pilgrimages so i um i could day trip i do think that the in, the independent bookstore space even you know is is very important, I think, to that sort of hand-selling, getting new authors into people's hands, um, because the people who work in those spaces are so excited about what they have to offer. Yeah, the the flip side of the the personal network recommendations is, you know, you look at those those schematic diagrams of, you know, personal connections and and who talks to who, and, and, and then you you see how the different networks don't intersect or they, you know, have these very small intersections. And I know, you know, when I first started regularly reading Smart Bitches Trashy Books, um, you know, looking for additional information about lesbian romance, especially lesbian historicals, and, you know, just combing through their their, uh, archives with search words and whatnot. And it wasn't simply that there was so little information but that when they had recommendation threads, it was it, it was a mixture of people saying, gosh, I wish there was more, I don't know of any, and people recommending a very small set of very often the same authors over and over again, where it's like I knew how small a set that was. And so you can get hooked into these recommendation networks and still not realize how much is out there that you never hear about because of the structure of the network. I absolutely agree. It reminds me a lot of people um, who talk about the the vulnerabilities of using whisper networks yes, to yes. figure out who the problem people are in your community, right? Because if you don't know the people who are you're into the whisper network, then you're really vulnerable to fall, falling into relationship with this person who have you know the the problematic person because you haven't heard you haven't heard the gossip and I think that that's a really similar the the side the, the, the silos are real yes um, and they have real ramifications and I think I, I'm not sure apart from sort of continuing to chip away yeah <laughs> I'm not sure how I don't think there's a magic way to break down those barriers in, in part because I think that, and we've talked about this on Twitter too, that there are historical reasons why the lesbic publishing and the lesbic readership are wary of opening up those spaces. Yeah, to I, I think we ended up with the a wider the, range of people. The, the metaphor of a walled garden or something like that. I don't know if that was with you, <laughs> <laughs> where that especially the lesbic publishers that came out of the feminist publishing movement deliberately cultivated, you know, a safe space in modern terms that, right. that, you know, this is what we are going to do and this is what we're going to promise you and this is what we're going to focus on and we are going to actively cultivate what we are doing in a very deliberate way coming out of, you know, the, the you know, political radicalism of the 70s and 80s. And it, it does what it means to do, but it does have consequences for maintaining those silos for really, you know, telling other potential community participants, other potential authors, other potential readers and saying, this isn't for you. You know, the, the, I think we've talked about, you know, that they're, the, the lesbic publishing community is only just starting to come out from under a serious cloud of biphobia where, you know, originally you wanted to promise your readers that, you do not have to worry about the characters in your romance novel possibly ever being involved with men. But that then shuts out a vast 
potential audience of women for whom not only would that not be a problem, but it feels actively off-putting for the characters to be, um, you know, anti-bi in terms of life choices. Right. And, and I think that's, as a, as a bisexual reader myself, um, <laughs> I think that I have, I have been in, you know, very consciously lesbian, you know, women-only spaces in my life. And there are times when I think those are useful and haven't, haven't always felt so actively hostile to me. But I, I do think that it's a really, <laughs> um, the biphobia is a part of it. And I think trans representation is another part of it because yes. I see there are certain FF romances that will get, that have a really strong readership where I, there's a character who is. Who can be read either way. Butch, yes. And, and I think, and those are about like, it's valid to have a character who cross dresses, but, st- but still identifies as a woman, um, or identifies as butch or however that person wants to identify. But, but for some readers that feels like trans erasure. So let's um, move on to talking about historical tropes in particular, because yeah. that's a, a, a useful place to enter the discussion, especially, in, I, I find this especially in American West stories, that you can almost guarantee one of the characters is going to be, at the very least, cross-dressing and engaged in a masculine profession, a male-coded profession, and very often will in fact be a passing woman, will be a, a, a self-identified woman passing as a man to all intents and purposes. And as yeah. you say, even when it's clear from the story that the character identifies as female, the, the lack of any acknowledgement of other possibilities can be very off-putting to readers who expect more trans inclusivity. Yeah, I think especially when you're talking about historicals, that gets into really fraught territory, right? Because you, as a historian, you're wrestling with what the documentary record provides. Yeah. And what the, docu- what the documentary record provides is the fact that the identities that we now think about as trans were different in the 19th century. The vocabulary was different. The ways that people expressed their gender were different. The and, models and they had for never, identifying themselves were different. Right. And so we will never know, based on the historical record, for the most part, unless someone leaves very clear language to the to explain, you know, that there there is a long history of women, of people who were identified as women, gender crossing for various professional you know, survival-based reasons um, or personal taste. And if all you have is a newspaper record that says, you know, person died, autopsy was done, oh my gosh, it was a woman, you have the sort of sensationalist press end of the story. This person was married to a woman, lived as a man for many years, uh, was discovered upon death to be um, yeah, female. Anatomically female, yes. Right, exactly. The, the doctors pronounced this person was actually female. Who's to say how that person understood their gender identity? And so when people are writing a story, if they are an author who understands that narrative to be about a woman who was passing as a man for sort of utilitarian purposes, um, they're going to tell that story in a certain way. And if they're a writer or a reader who understands that narrative to be more about personal gender identity, um, they're going to tell that story in a different way. Both of those readings are valid for the person who's writing the novel, but your readership is going to come at it from a whole range (laughs) of perspectives and feel like their understanding of those stories is invalidated. Like, I'm thinking of the biography, the fictional biography of Dr. Barry. That everybody's been talking about on Twitter. <laughs> that, that everyone's been talking about on Twitter. And this is a little bit of a, a, this is a really loaded example because the book is being published by a mainstream publisher and it's not clearly labeled fiction. So people mm-hmm. feel like it's misrepresenting. That it's at the very uh, least fictionalized biography. 
right? So are we talking about someone who's misrepresenting the historical record versus inspired by real life events? But that I think is a, is a similar story where the author feels the historical the historical person that their character is based off of was a woman was a cisgender woman who was crossing as a man in order to practice medicine. Many other people legitimately feel that the historical record says this person chose to live their life as a man and should be represented as such. And I, so I think that that's a real, a real tension in FF romance that often readers will come to a story and feel it is, it is erasure to call it FF and, um, because they're reading the character as M. And one of the complications of that in the historic context, and as you know, I, I'm an amateur historian and I delve into this a lot in my blog, is that there is a vast territory in history, both real life people and literature, where the gender disguise aspect is the window into the possibility of a homoerotic interaction. Where it, I, I did a whole essay once about it being a, a sort of a, a portal fantasy mechanism where gender disguise creates that, that window, that doorway into imagining what it would be like to love somebody of the same gender. And this is why, you know, I I always get just twitchy around the idea of, well, if you can do a trans interpretation of a historic figure, you should take that interpretation. Because for me, that takes away so many of, and I'm deliberately using inflammatory language here. For me, that would take away so many of the characters and figures that I have been able to identify with in history and historic literature. And I'm actually doing a series on the podcast right now that really goes into these ideas of the intertwining of gender and sexuality in historic themes. There were, you know, a lot of cultural contexts where the culture told you, if you are a female-bodied person who is in love with or attracted to a woman, by definition, that actually makes you a trans man. And, and that historically, there was this erasure of lesbian possibilities from the culture, from the cultural context, from the models that, that they had for understanding how the world worked. And that, that's, that's not exclusive. There were also plenty of cultures that said, no, two female presenting women um, can be in love with and have sex with each other, and that's, that's a thing. But it, it does complicate the issue of interpretation. And the, the path I always try to take is that there's no, it's not an either or. You know, you don't have to claim a particular individual or a particular story for one side and one side only. We, we, we can share. It can be both a wave and a particle. Uh, but that the, the queer identity movement in all of its parts has had such a strong sense of claiming, of historic claiming and saying, this person, this, this person was one of us, this person was like me. And it's very hard to, to share, uh, to, to share and not feel like you are losing something in the sharing. Uh, and, and that I think is something we are all gonna to have to work through and not feel like we have to elbow people out of the way to, for our identification purposes. Yeah, I think that that's very well, the idea of like sharing without losing something, I think is really evocative and it makes me think of this essay by Linda Holmes um, of NPR. She wrote around, I think it was the Black Widow movie that came out. It was one of the Avengers movies uh-huh. in which Black Widow was a character and the storyline there was a storyline around forced sterilization oh, yeah. um, and her desire to have a baby but being unable to because she'd been um, sterilized. And there were a lot of feels about that <laughs> in social media and elsewhere because, of course, you know, there were people who were like, you know, a woman's entire identity shouldn't be reduced to, you know, she wants to get pregnant and can't. And then people equally obviously saying, you know, it's, it's valid to want uh, to be a mother. And Linda Holmes wrote this great essay about 
basically resource scarcity and saying like when you have one female yes. character in this in this franchise and she gets one movie about with it centers her story everyone wants that story to feel like something that's personal to the, like they can connect with that character because it's the one woman in this universe and so she becomes contested territory because everyone wants a piece of that story and the solution to that is having enough in this case enough female characters that you have a wide range of possibilities for how a woman may or may not want to become a parent and how they want to become a parent (laughs) and it seems to me that analogously you know the, the sort of queer romance genre and even just the lesbic part of it those become contested because it feels like a scarce resource or a threatened resource right mm-hmm. we were talking about all garden right if someone's yeah. threatening the garden people get protective and it does seem like that that the solution is hopefully that we will have a wider array yeah. of representation so people will realize that representing character A as a trans man doesn't mean that character B can't be a butch woman and you know all those sorts of yeah I got a reader comment on my my novelette the Mazarinette and the Musketeer where they said it was the first story they could recall reading the first historical story they could recall reading that included both an obviously trans man and cross-dressing women and where the characters were clearly set up with those identities and both present. And this is the thing is we need more of that. And I think we're getting more of it. Um, I've been, so I have this theory of like the, the three silos of the approach to queer rep in, in fiction. Um, I call it the, the donut shop theory, which is um, <laughs> you, you have walked into a donut shop, you have ordered something, it's going to be a donut, you know you're going to get a donut. And this is what Lesvik Publishing is. You, you have gone there for the Lesvik Donuts, and that's what you're going to get. And you, in mainstream publishing, although we're starting to see a movement away from this, it's the Whisper Network. It's, we're going to put queer characters in our books, but we're not going to tell you about them. But we're pretty confident that somebody will let you in on the secret, so we don't have to scare away our straight readers, but we can know we can get you as well. And then the, the third silo, which I, I, I started off by calling it, it the, the Tumblr silo, which is probably mostly based on my complete misunderstanding of Tumblr dynamics. But it's the, we are going to list every single identity you are going to find in this book when we put up the book blurb. And you may not have any idea what the plot is, but by golly, you will know what all the identities are. And, and they're all really valuable approaches and they all assume a certain readership. You know, what I call the, the, the Tumblr group may, might actually be better identified as the fanfic approach. You know, you've got the tags that tell you everything that's in this recipe. And within that, within the, the fanfic approach or the Tumblr approach or whatever you want to call it, I think there is a lot more emphasis on cross-intersectional identities in, you know, not just more of everything, but people with a lot of different overlapping identities and recognizing that more is better, that, that providing a, a smorgasbord so that whoever the reader is, they will find somebody to identify with, that this is good, this is not off-putting to your, your audience, um, this is a positive feature. Yeah, I, I definitely see aspects of that in, in fan fiction communities. As, uh, one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking is that because fan fiction exists outside of the sort of the gatekeeping dynamics of publishing and because any given writers who are writing around an original work of some kind generate uh, every single person is going to generate a different take on the original story i think one of the things that fan fiction practice actually helps you develop muscles for is that there are multiple readings of a text right because it's actually concretely creating those multiple readings. You can have a television show like Eureka and everyone's going to watch, you know, episode A or B and come away with 10 different ways they wish that the final scene had gone. <laughs> and those can all end up in the fan fiction archive 
And if you want to go read all 10 of them, you can. If you see nothing that matches your interpretation in those 10, you can create the 11th. And it's, I want to be really careful not to idealize that space because there are still definitely gatekeeping. (laughs) You know, there are ways that people get very clear messages about what types of what is acceptable and what isn't and are unacceptable what kinds of character relationships are not okay so there are people who experience fan fiction space as unwelcoming and hostile people can still feel unwelcome but i do think that it helps people get used to the idea that a single character could be understood in many different ways and that those don't have to be mutually exclusive so hopefully as more, you know, fan creators and fan readers migrate into more conventional publishing spaces, the experience that they've had doing that will help people feel a little bit less like we're dealing with a resource scarcity situation. So since we're talking about fan fiction, I want to move on to one of your other topics. Uh, you were talking about fanfic gender dynamics and that your experience has been that FF stories in fanfic tend to be clustered into contemporary fandoms, crime dramas. Uh, I know that there are certain TV shows that have been very productive of FF fanfiction. And that your perception is that the writers and readers within those fandoms are distinct from the writers and readers of MM and MF fic. And you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that I have much more to observe there um but that i think that in some ways the fan fiction fan fiction spaces mirror what we've been talking about with lesbic and the larger queer romance sort of publishing genre that the people i have talked to that that there are definitely people who read and write exclusively ff and they aren't interested in either reading or writing other types of relationships and to me that can it's it's not I don't think a purposeful bifurcation of the space but I think it does sort of end up the conversations end up being largely separate because there are a lot of media products out there where you can create lots of different types of relationship constellations and if the people in those spaces aren't writing FF and the people in the spaces who are writing FF aren't reading in these other fandoms, you're not kind of learn the conversations aren't happening between the, in those two spaces. And I see, and one of the reasons I started writing FF uh, fan fiction is that I was really frustrated with the fact that people weren't including those relationships in the works for the types of shows that I was watching things like, you know, Downton Abbey or, that was the first one that I ended up writing in. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of things. I did one for Upstairs, Downstairs. I did sort of a lot of British dramas <laughs> um, in the beginning because it it seemed to me such a, an obvious historical space for creating FF relationships in, those, in the 19th century sort of world that these BBC shows were creating. You had a lot of women and spaces where um, you could develop you could create ff relationships where the women had could carve out enough independence for themselves that you didn't have to sort of reimagine a whole different history uh, yeah yeah or a whole different space for them um and one of the things that i think one of the reasons that ff historicals either fall into the gender crossing stuff that we talked about earlier, where in order to have, you know, this relationship be successful, you have to have someone who's playing the role of a man either economically or somehow in order to to make their relationship viable. In the late 19th, early 20th century spaces I was playing with, you start having enough women who are becoming economically independent. Yes, the new woman movement. They set up housekeeping together. But I wasn't seeing people do that. I think a lot of times as a reflection of the dearth of women in mainstream media, you writers end up defaulting to writing MM in fan fiction because there are so many more main characters who are men. 
Yeah, I, so I had. Hopefully, that I I recall one person saying, and now I, I I'm re- wondering if it was you, but I think it was somebody else saying. One of the problems they ran into in writing FF fan fiction was finding properties where there were two female characters in the show that were interesting enough that you could imagine them having a story together. And, and I think that even for ordinary historical settings, there's this, this great, I don't want to use the word ignorance, but this absence of an awareness of women's lives that people can then imagine female relationships into. We just, we don't know what women in general were capable of and were experiencing. And, and it makes it so much harder to then imagine two people of that category coming together and having an independent life together. Cause we can't even imagine one woman having an independent life in history. I, I say we, but obviously I am not one of these people. <laughs> But I, I, I find it interesting that the, the name Xena has not come up in this discussion of uh, FF fanfic, because my experience in talking to people is that a lot of lesbic readers came to the genre through Xena fanfiction. And certainly that a lot of, a vast percentage of FF historicals have some sort of genesis in Xena fan fiction. There's the entire uh, genre of uber fiction, which is let's take Xena and Gabrielle and put them in some other historic context and then have them fall in love again because of course they are fated soulmates, which of course has its own issues. But you know, as I understand it, uh, Bold Strokes books basically grew out of um, re- filing serial numbers off of Xena fan fiction and packaging it as Lesvik. And uh, and I and I actually I hope to have a guest on my show at some point who has very much been immersed in that stream going into the Lesvik River um, to to talk more about it. But you know that. I think that lesbian historicals, uh, FF historicals, have been shaped in people's understanding of the field by the quantity of works that have had their origins as Xena fanfic. I, I know that uh, I, I ran into one early review of my own Daughter of Mystery that basically said, well, it's a very nice story, but she really hasn't gotten Xena and Gabrielle down right. And it's like, uh, but, but... <laughs> As if, as if that was the only way that you could imagine a historical lesbian story. So is, is this simply a fan fiction that you have never uh, intersected with? Or is there some reason why? Yeah, yeah so I haven't. That's, I, I am aware that it's out there. I never, I'm 38 and didn't watch a lot of pop cultural product as a child sort of through into the 90s. So... I didn't, I read a lot, but I didn't watch shows. We didn't have cable television. And so I didn't watch, I missed the X-Files fandom, for example, and I missed the Xena fandom. And both of those are hugely instrumental in sort of the development of fan fiction. But by the time I came to networked communities of fan creators, that that was not, those were not very active communities. Mm. Buffy is another space that I, that I am aware of, but didn't spend a whole lot Uh of time in. So I think. So it's a generational uh, thing as it were. Part of, yeah, I think so. Like my, my wife was involved in networked fan spaces earlier than I was um, and had sort of lived through the Buffy era, the end of the Xena era into the Buffy (laughs) era. And I think that you're also, with fan fiction, today it's becoming a little bit more stable because we have spaces like Archive of Our Own, but you have whole generations of fan works, either pre-internet, where you're going to have to go to do research in zine libraries to get to some of that stuff, or it was digital spaces like LiveJournal or GeoCities that died or content was killed and so it's very ephemeral in that way and the conversations that happened in those spaces are necessarily accessible to people who weren't in them at the time uh, didn't you know subscribe to the right usenet mm-hmm. networks and things like that so 
Yeah, there's another entire conversation to be had around the way that the dynamics of online spaces have shaped the communities and shaped the cultural movements. And I find it utterly fascinating. And at that point, Anna and I realized that we had far more to talk about than we could manage in a single show. So we took a break and we'll continue the conversation next week. You can find links to the authors, publications, websites, and other topics that we mentioned in the show notes, as well as links to Anna's social media. Come back next show for the rest of our conversation. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 